Welcome to the Grace City Eugene podcast. We exist to help every person in our sphere of influence encounter Christ, experience biblical community, and extend God's kingdom. If we can help you in any way, feel free to reach out to hello at gracecityeugene.com. Here's the podcast. As they were leaving Bethany, Jesus was hungry. Seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to find out if it had any fruit. When he reached it, he found nothing but leaves because it was not the season for figs. And then he said to the tree, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard him say it. On reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple courts and began driving out those who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of the of those selling doves and would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. And as he taught them, he said, Is it not written, My house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. The chief priests and the teachers of the law heard this and began looking for a way to kill him, for they feared him, because the whole crowd was amazed at his teaching. And when evening came, Jesus and his disciples went out of the city. And in the morning, as they went along, they saw the fig tree withered from the roots. Peter remembered and said to Jesus, Rabbi, look, the fig tree you cursed has withered. Have faith in God, Jesus answered. Truly, I tell you, If anyone says to this mountain, go throw yourself into the sea, and does not doubt in their heart, but believes that what they say will happen, it will be done for them. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask for in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. And when you stand praying, if you hold anything against anyone, forgive them so that your Father in heaven may forgive you your sins. So as we get into the message today, the title of this message is Scattered. As you know, we're in this mini-series called Here Comes the King, where we're looking at, um, as Jesus finished his ministry, right? He's headed down to Jerusalem. That was the last series, the journey to Jerusalem, and now he's here. Uh, And last week, um, which proved to be quite the timely message, we talked about Jesus's entry into Jerusalem and um, that the people were looking for some sort of king that Jesus was not going to be. (laughs) They were looking for some sort of nationalistic uh, power and authoritarian like ruler, leader, and Jesus is a different kind of king. That's what we talked about last week. If you haven't listened to the message, whether you're here in person or you missed last week or with us online, I would, uh, would encourage you to check that out. And, uh, and now today, we're going to title this Scattered. You know, there's a couple of reasons I call it that. First of all, I don't know about you guys, but when you read this scripture today, it just seems kind of scattered, doesn't it? You're like, fig tree! And then, you know, Jesus is angry, righteous indignation he is expressing. And then fig tree again. And then, you know, there's just, it's all over the place. And it seems so scattered. So scattered as a matter of fact that previous times when I wasn't like obligated, we'll say, to really dig in and study this, it's just like, that's weird. I'll move on. Like, yeah, I do that too. I was just like, oh my gosh, what? 
Jesus is cursing a fig tree, and then he goes in the temple, and he's flipping stuff over. He's calling them robbers. Like, there's so, it's all over the place, seemingly. <laughs> Seems all over the place. But a thorough understanding of this text actually tells us of a new temple, a new kind of community in Christ who actually decentralizes the religious mechanisms of worship and scatters them throughout the world, extending God's kingdom through each representative or citizen of that kingdom. So as much as, as, as we look at it right off the bat, it's like, man, this is really scattered information. I don't understand what's going on here. As we go through this, my prayers that you see, this is actually a call for the people of God to scatter the mechanisms and methods that are represented in the temple of the Old Testament into the world through each person, through each representative. So this text, in fact, is not scattered, but God's presence is meant to be. Kind of a big idea to, to, to listen to this through today. His presence is meant to be scattered into every neighborhood, every nation, and every people group. So let's understand this text today together so that we can understand the call of God on our lives and our community through this scripture. Sound good? So let's pray. Father, thank you for this time. Thank you for your word. I thank you that uh, your word is not to be taken at just face value, that because it presents challenges in our understanding doesn't mean that there isn't something profound to be taken from it, learned from it, and applied in our lives. So Holy Spirit, I pray that you would make that clear to us today. I pray that you would speak through me to this beloved family of mine here today, and that uh, we would all be drawn closer to you through these words. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Like I said, it seems kind of scattered. There's a lot of things that we need to just discuss briefly to bring some light to some of the cultural context and those things in there. So we're just going to kind of go back through the scripture, unpacking a few of those things, and then we're going to hit on the main idea of this. So this incident, as we read, happens on the way from Jerusalem to Jerusalem from Bethany, where Jesus had spent the night. And then he comes to this fig tree, and he notices that it's full of leaves, and we read that he's hungry, and he comes to it, and there's no fruit on it. There's no fruit. Now, it says that the fig tree is actually out of season. So, like, as I read this, I'm like, this fig tree hasn't done nothing wrong, right? <laughs> Poor fig tree. Um, it's, it's somewhere um, in full leaves. The fig tree in Jerusalem would be full of leaves by March or April, but it wouldn't produce fruit until June. So, the tree's just sitting there doing its thing, doing what it's supposed to. Uh, it's presenting as fully healthy, and, and maybe, you know, you see a tree full of leaves, and you think, oh, maybe there's some fruit on it. But up to this point, all we know is that it's not the season. The tree hasn't done anything wrong. And Jesus addresses the tree directly, and by his war words, he performs this miracle of destruction. Have you ever thought about it like that? Like, this is a miracle of destruction, Jesus commands something that is, has to happen supernaturally, and he tells it, you're done. <laughs> you're done. This is the only miracle of destruction attributed to Jesus in the Gospels. And the, across all scholars, commentators, like, it's, this is what it's referred to. This isn't just like, wow, Chris is calling Jesus destructive. Like, no, this is known as Jesus is a, a miracle of destruction. However, it's helpful if we actually view this miracle as an enacted parable, an acted out parable, a teaching moment embodied utilizing the prop of this tree for Jesus to teach his disciples something. And his hunger and seeking out of food conveniently presents this 
opportunity for teaching or this teaching device. Now, what does the, rep, the fig tree represent if this is a parable is important to understand. This fig tree represents Israel, Israel in the temple. The tree is fully leafed out and in such a state, like I mentioned, that many could expect to find fruit in it. Again, you see a fully grown, full of leaves plant that you know bears fruit. You, you could expect that it might have some fruit on it. But its lack of fruit symbolizes the hypocrisy of Israel's leaders who have made the people ripe for judgment from God. One scholar put it this way. A people which honored God with their lips, but whose heart was all the time far from him, was like a tree with an abundance of leaves, but no fruit. That is the parable that Israel is presenting to be healthy and full of life, yet it lacks fruit. That is what is given imagery here. And Jesus curses the fig tree, and we read that the disciples hear it. I can't help sometimes but get like some of those memes in my head when something happens when I'm reading it, and I just see like one of those where it's like, you've seen those, right? People may post it on your comments on social media these days, but you, you say something, and you're like, huh? What, is, what does that mean? Like, that's what I, like, the disciples are like, we've been seeing you bring life and speak healing and wholeness in this world in which you've come down into, and now you're cursing a fig tree that's out of sea out of season. Like, that's the, what I imagine these disciples' reaction being here. So they go on, and it seems kind of an abrupt change, but they go on and they enter Jerusalem. And Mark describes the following events very simply and with little introduction. He just launches right in. Jesus enters the temple courts. He begins driving out the same strong word for driving out is associated with exorcisms previously in Mark. So this isn't like, all right, shoo, come on. It's an authoritative command that he used when he was driving out demons and performing exorcisms. He's driving out those who are buying and selling. Then he starts flipping over tables of the money changers and the benches, it says, of those selling doves. Now, let's talk about this a little bit, because if you just read through this, you're like, yeah, that's right, Jesus, they're trying to make money off your temple. Get them. Kick them out of there. Like, that's how you kind of read it at first. You're like, yeah, that's right. Get them out. Get them out, right? We don't sell stuff at church, right? And then people are like, we shouldn't have a resource table and sell stuff because Jesus is going to come flip over our tables. And, you know, there's, there's all these correlations that we draw falsely if we don't understand what's going on here. You see, the, as we talked about last week, the pilgrims are coming to Jerusalem for Passover, Right? The population would likely triple as they anticipated this festival of Passover. And for the convenience of the pilgrims, during this time and the weeks leading up to it, the outer temple courts, known as the court of the Gentiles, would be set up with money changers and the sales of kosher animals that were appropriate and approved for sacrifice. This wasn't like necessarily some ongoing like, hey, come on, you're on your way to church, you want to help me make some money, kind of like this was a necessary function for the methods and the happenings of the temple to take place leading up to Passover. They set up business in the temple's outer area, like I said, which was known as the court of the Gentiles. These animals were sold for sacrifice because it was far easier for a pilgrim to come to Jerusalem and then purchase an animal that they knew was kosher and worthy of sacrifice that they were going to present on Passover than to try to bring an animal through their whole journey, maintain its purity so that they could give the proper sacrifice. So this was just a normal, appropriate 
expression of what it meant to lead up to this celebration. Now, Mark mentions only doves and pigeons here, but other gospels talk about other animals. But as you go in to study this more, which we don't have time for today, these specific animals were sacrificial offerings for the poor. And this goes along with a theme, like I said, that isn't the main theme today, but I encourage you to read and continue to to study this because there's a theme in here about Mark is illustrating Jesus' care for the marginalized in a power system known as the temple, the religious leaders. There might be something for us to learn today if we were to read further into that. But that's why he mentions that one, because he's speaking to mainly a Gentile people that are removed from the religious power systems of Jerusalem. And he's saying, hey, they were, they're, they're talking about these pigeons or these doves. The original word could mean either. So the Roman money that the pilgrims brought with them had to be changed into a different kind of currency, which was the closest thing to a Hebrew shekel that they had. It was called Tyrian currency because the temple tax that had to be paid in the weeks leading up to Passover had to be in a specific kind of currency. You had to change out, get the right kind of currency so you could go pay your temple tax so you could faithfully observe this Passover festival and give all your sacrifices in the purified places and purified times. You get the picture. So... Animals were needed. It was a convenience. It was, it was almost a service to the pilgrims. The two-thirds of the population during Passover week for, were not from that town that they were providing there and exchanging the currency so that people could pay their temple tax. Again, these were necessary for effective functioning of the temple. And there's no indication in Mark that these transactions themselves were wrong. Which if we look at it that way, it starts to break down maybe what our preconceived ideas of how the rest of this plays out might be. Now, of course, it's possible that some of these businesses were practicing extortion or maybe they were swindling people, charging outrageous prices for the animals because, you know, supply and demand and and all of those things. Um, But that is not necessarily what Jesus is confronting here. But its location in the temple and the disruption of the worship it caused is something that he is dealing with. When we read also that he would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts, again, seems like a scattered piece of information. But this was to prevent people from taking what was supposed to be a sacred space for worship and prayer, right? And using it for a convenient shortcut from the Mount of Olives into the city because it sat right in the middle of that. So again, he's trying to say, hey, you guys have perverted a holy place with the ways in which you are utilizing it and operating in it. In the Jewish religious texts, um, namely the Mishnah, it was actually not allowed. It was prohibited for people to use the uh, temple to transport things through. It, w- it wasn't even supposed to be done by, by their religious laws, and so he wasn't trying to bring something new in. He might, in fact, be pointing out more of the hypocrisy of the high priest and challenging the power system that was at place here. Jesus then quotes Isaiah 56, 7 to them, pointing out, The purpose of the temple is to be a place that even foreigners will seek the Lord and that it should be a house of prayer for all nations or all people and all people groups. I'd encourage you to go back and read Isaiah 56 because the whole thing is setting up that this temple will be a place where people from all nations will come and they will enter into the presence of God and it will be a house of prayer. We only get these two little sentences here, but there's a lot of context to it that again 
people that were reading this, people that were being spoken to, that were in this context, would have known what he was referencing in Isaiah. So this court that they were set up in, I mentioned, was the court of Gentiles. And this was the only place in the temple that non-Jews were allowed to come into. It was the only place. It was where they were allowed to come in, worship, interact to whatever level they were able to. And these religious leaders, business folks, had turned it into a public market. Therefore, they eliminated the availability of this space for worship to the foreigners, to people who weren't a part of the in-group, the, the Jewish elite, if you will. It was not able to be used for its expressed purposes. So the significance then of this episode is that with the coming Messiah, Jesus seeks to make available to Gentiles the privileges which have belonged exclusively to Jews and therefore proclaims that worship will be uninhibited by the Jewish religious restrictions. And his actions here in the temple proclaim that the time has come, that worshiping him will be made available to all people, all people groups, all nations. Like there's a breaking down of this, these religious restrictions so that all of God's people can experience him. Now, this development would have been especially meaningful for Mark's audience that he was writing to because, like I mentioned, they're predominantly Gentile folks that are reading this. He's writing to an audience that is not part of the Jewish cultural elite. They're not part of that expression. So this is amazing news. That, hey, this Jesus guy actually came so that you can be included in a house of worship, to, in this house of prayer. So as we move on, we know that the Pharisees and the Herodians had already decided that Jesus needed to go, right? We've been seeing that theme happen as he was journeying into Jerusalem. But now the chief priests who oversaw the temple and the teachers of the law or the scribes have come to the same decision. His actions in the temple directly challenge their authority, the authority of those in religious power. So they go into action against him, but not openly, of course, because Jesus has got himself a little popularity now, right? It says people are astonished at his teaching. They're amazed at, at what he's sharing with them about the kingdom of God and, and the lessons that, that he's giving. His charismatic actions and his teachings have captivated the Jewish crowds, and so these, these authoritarian folks on the religious side of things, like they're out to get them, but they got to be a little covert about it because they don't want to upset the apple cart. They don't want to go against the mob, against the crowds at this point. So after that episode at the temple, Jesus and his disciples withdraw from Jerusalem for the night, presumably returning to Bethany. And then the next morning they awaken and they return to Jerusalem from Bethany and they pass this darn fig tree we talked about earlier. They pass the fig tree. And it was totally destroyed. It was withered from the roots. Now, I, I did some work on my family's seed farm back in the day. And one major part of it that'll probably cause me cancer was I sprayed Roundup on a lot of weeds in my day. And we'd spray those puppies, and I'd drive by the field the next day. And even with that nasty chemical called Roundup, they weren't withered yet the next day. Like you, it's, you couldn't tell except for if you had some dye in the spray so you knew what you had been spraying. It was miraculous that this fully-leaved fig tree went from, oh, Jesus thought maybe it had fruit, to fully withered, destroyed in a day. Like the, so it, it, they noticed it. They're walking by, and, and of course, Peter's like, oh, I, 
I remember when Jesus cursed that poor tree. Like, look, the tree's withered. He draws his attention to it, right? And then what can seem bizarre, Jesus doesn't like directly address that. He doesn't say, well, let me tell you what I meant to say or what I was doing when I interacted with the fig tree. He doesn't explicitly interpret that event. But the meaning is clear. He predicted judgment on the temple that will come to pass as surely as his prediction of destruction of that fig tree would come to pass. They correlate. This temple thing interrupts this fig tree saga because they are meant to bring context to one another. And then like the previous pronouncements of Jesus, he begins with this statement, truly I tell you, as he's going to draw them into the heart of what's happening which is his way of saying, listen up, this is important, right? We've talked about this before. Listen up, this is important. Truly, I tell you. Then he explains the importance of faith and the importance of prayer and that prayer and forgiveness have a correlation as well. To be, infe- to be effective, prayer must be offered in faith, faith in the all-powerful God who works miracles. And it must be offered in the spirit of forgiveness, Faith and the willingness to forgive are two conditions of effective prayer. Now, we, we kind of know that, like, hey, we, got, we want to get our hearts right before God. He calls us to forgive so we can be forgiven. And so it probably makes sense that we should be for, forgiving when we come to the Lord in prayer. But it's not often that we've read up to this point, if at all, that forgiveness and faith have to be accompanied within the prayer. That if you're going to come before God and pray, you got to have a spirit of forgiveness. you got to have a spirit of forgiveness. So he makes a hard stance here. Now, that's a lot of different stuff. It's kind of all over the place. But now let's wrap that all together and see what God wants to speak to us this morning. We need to take a deeper look at two specific things here. There's a lot that can be said, like I shared with you guys, like coming up with or putting together these messages. There's so much cool stuff that I could geek out over, but we just don't have time in a morning. And so read this. If you want some more resources, whatever, I'm, I'm happy to help, but please don't just leave this at what we're able to fit into the message this morning. But we need to talk specifically about the temple and about prayer, because those are the two big things being dealt with in this text today. So the cursing of the fig tree in the temple episode, which some people call this the temple cleansing, but I think it's more fitting to understand it as the denunciation of the temple. Like Jesus is denouncing the temple and what it stands for and how it prohibits others from entering into the presence of God, right? And, and there's more to come about that, but it's not a cleansing. Jesus isn't coming to like make the temple clean again. He's coming to destroy it and bring about a new temple, a new way of extending his presence, his prayer, his worship in our world. So we see the fig tree, then we have this denunciation of the temple, and then we have this discovery of the withered fig tree. And these are all closely related, and they represent another one of Mark's sandwiching techniques or bracketing techniques that we've talked about, where you have this episode that's interrupted, and then it's finished. And that's because they are meant to bring context to one another. The episode of the temple interrupts the fig tree account and provides clues to its meaning. So both represent symbolic acts of judgment against Israel's religious leaders for failing to produce spiritual fruit. They're failing to produce spiritual fruit. And the arrangement of these incidents is designed to link these accounts together, interpreting one another. 
So what we need to understand about Jesus' interaction in the temple is this. Jesus isn't seeking to purify the current temple worship, but to symbolically attack the very function of the temple and herald its destruction. Now, if we just read this, just pass through it, and don't really get down into what's going on, and maybe read Isaiah and Jeremiah 7 and some of these other places that Jesus is alluding to, we miss this. We think, oh, Jesus is coming to make the temple holy again. And then, you know, he's getting out those robbers and he's cleansing it so that the temple can be all that it is supposed to be. But all that Jesus is telling the temple is going to be is destroyed, which happens as he dies on the cross, so that the temple can be in every believer represented throughout the earth. The temple's glory days are coming to an end. And in private, Jesus predicts this to his disciples, that the temple will be destroyed in chapter 13 of Mark. Gentiles were not allowed to enter into this temple proper. So if, if that's the case, and what we know about Jesus so far reading, even just in the gospel of Mark, like Jesus cares deeply about those who are not just Jewish traditional citizens, right? We see that he has cared about Gentiles and people from other nations, would Jesus really bring all these pilgrims and people from all these nations, or not, would, not, he didn't bring them, but would he really care for them to all come for this Passover and not actually be able to be in his presence? They all come to Mount Zion to celebrate Passover, but then they're excluded from actually being in the presence of God and worshiping in the temple courts as they're supposed to? Like, does that represent the heart of God that we've seen so far as we read through these scriptures? I, I would say it doesn't. I would say it doesn't. Would he have gathered the nations to Mount Zion and force them to spend their time in the outer court or outside of where the true worship was happening? What kind of beacon of light is that to the nations? Right? Like, oh yeah, come for Passover and we'll do our thing in here and you can watch from a distance. Because in Jesus' day, the temple had become a nationalistic symbol that served only to divide or set apart Israel from the nations, rather than to bring the people of God together in one place. It had become a place that set apart, oh, Israel's special, and they get all the special privileges at the temple, and you other people can be in the outer courts or whatever else. It was a nationalistic, divisive mechanism spurred on by the high priests and the religious systems of that day. And Jesus was not standing for that. So if we are to become what God intended, a house of prayer for all nations, walls would have to crumble in this temple system that they had. And indeed, walls were soon collapsed and barriers would be breached as the veil was torn at Jesus' death, as we will read soon. Then we have this reference to the den of robbers. And in the context which you maybe previously understood this, it makes sense. Like, oh, you guys are robbing people of their money, den of robbers. But it actually has little to do with the trade in the temple. And instead, it denounces the false security that the sacrificial system of the temple breeds. It's denouncing the false security that this system breeds. In other words, the robbers are not the swindlers or, or crooked business folks, but they're bandits. And they do their robbing, not in the den, but out in the world. 
They're doing the robbing out in the world. The den is the place where the robbers retreat after having committed their crimes. It's their hideout, if you will. It's a place of security and refuge. So they're out in the world manipulating God's word, robbing from widows and whoever else that may be marginalized or needy. And then they come back and all they got to do is buy a pure lamb and spill its blood and do the sacrifice thing. And then they're all good again. Do you see how that's broken and disconnected from the heart of God and what we know his will is for his people? And so the temple is functionally saying, hey, it doesn't matter what you're doing out there, how you're living your life, the condition of your heart or how you conduct yourself, as long as you come in and you take this kosher animal and you sacrifice it in the right pure place, in the right pure time with the right pure methods, then you're good. Then you're good. It's a den of robbers or bandits, people who are not conducting themselves in a godly way that come to hide out and put themselves under the shelter of the sacrificial system. And Jesus is not down with that. He's not down with it. <clears throat> Jesus' prophetic action and words attack a false trust in the effectiveness of the temple sacrifice system. People think that they can rob folks. <laughs> and then perform these prescribed sacrifices, and it secures them from all the trouble that's in front of them. But they're wrong. <laughs> the sacrifice of animal, animals, animals, animals will not enable them to evade the doom that God purposes for the guilty of lying, stealing, violent, and manipulating the marginalized. The sanctuary, supposedly sanctified by God, has become a sanctuary for bandits who think they're protected from God's judgment. This changes the context of everything here. And Jesus shares the purview of God. He sees what people are doing, and he is saying, God's going to judge this. This is over. I came actually to destroy this. And that's not some physical, like bringing in a wrecking ball and a crane kind of thing. But I'm going to destroy this system. I'm going to obliterate it and bring about a new system of community. Something, is di something different is required of God's people. A heart change is required. A new type of lifestyle, if you will. A citizenship to a new kingdom requires a new lifestyle, new rhythms, and new methods. So Jesus teaches the disciples that the functions that were once only available in the temple, like prayer, forgiveness of sins, God's presence, are going to be available to every believer, and he's ushering in a new temple system. And indicative of this new system, as he closes up this, this text, is a new kind of people who pray and pray differently. Not religious prayers read off of some scroll, but a people that will pray with a spirit of forgiveness and with huge faith that God can move mountains. This new kind of people, this scattered temple, this scattering of God's presence in all the ways that people have come to experience God at the temple being disseminated throughout the earth is going to be indicative of a people of faith and a people of prayer. So what does that mean for us? There is power in prayer. And what a Sunday leading up to this coming week for this to fall on. It's almost like we planned it this way, but we didn't. God did. <laughs> you see, people regarded the temple as a place of prayer. Jesus expected it to be a place of prayer for all nations. 
But in his explanation of the fig tree's withering, Jesus envisioned the future without the temple. He's, he's declaring this future without a temple. But its demise would not bring an end to effective prayer. Right? Some of the Jewish scholars thought, but this is threatening because by him doing this, that means prayer is going to go out the window and we don't have these sacred places to actually pray where God will actually hear it and actually care. Like, what's going to happen <laughs> to prayer? But in fact, there will be a new praying community that is scattered instead of centralized. One scholar writes, the massive institutionalized power of the existing religious establishment must give way to the kingdom community whose power lies solely in faith-born prayer. A kingdom community whose power lies solely in faith-born prayer. Prayer that is full of faith in the all-powerful God that we serve. So what does prayer look like for this community? If you're taking notes, write some of these things down. If you're not, really give time to pursue God in this way and this week and see how it might change your life or your relationship with him. But this new community needs to pray receptively. You see, prayer is not imposing our will on God. How many times do we think, all right, whew, God, I need you to do this for me. Like, I know you're probably working something out, but the, here, here's what I need. It's opening up our lives to God's will. It's not imposing our will on God. It's opening up our lives to God's will. It's being receptive. True prayer is not an endeavor to get God to change his will, but an endeavor to release that will in our own lives. That's good, right? It's not about getting him to change his will, but about receiving his will in our lives. I don't know how familiar you guys are with, with boats and like when you bring a boat up to a dock, there's these cleats or what some people call like a boat hook that's on a dock. And when you're trying to bring a dock or a boat into the dock, you wrap a rope around it and you pull on the rope. Now, are you trying to pull the earth, like the dock and the shore to you? Or are you pulling on that to draw your boat into the dock, into the harbor, into the refuge? It's like that when we pray, we're not trying to oh, get over here. Come on, dock. No, we're bringing ourselves, drawing ourselves to this sanctuary, to this safety, to this dock, to this, whatever imagery you want to put to it. But that's how it is when we pray. We're not saying, come on, God, get over here. We're, we're praying and we're drawing ourselves near to him. Near to him. We draw ourselves to God, not trying to pull God toward us. And Jesus provides an example of this receptive praying in the Garden of Gethsemane when he boldly entreats God, right? Say, would you take this cup? But he finishes with not what I will, but what you will. He's not trying to bring God into his will. He's trying to draw closer to his ultimately. So we need to pray with receptivity. Secondly is the people of this community are to pray confidently. To pray confidently. What does that look like in your life? To pray confidently. This text does not invite one to attempt magical miracles, okay? This isn't about some sorcery and like, oh yeah, Jesus did this, needed miracles, and obviously the Holy Spirit has power, so I'm just going to pray confidently and God's going to do all this mystical stuff. That's not what it's about. We are not to test our faith by going to a mountain and saying, hey, mountain, be moved. <laughs> like, ah, oh, he didn't do it, and now my faith is ruined. Like, that is not what this is saying. We must guard against treating prayer as it were a magic wand that allows us to get whatever we want. 
We've all seen that TV show, seen that book, seen that podcast. Stay away from it. That is not what we are talking about. When Christians pray with confident faith that their prayers will have power, they can, like Jesus, overcome even the greatest oppression because nothing is impossible with God. But prayer is not an engine by which we overcome the unwillingness of God. It's not like, oh, got to rev up that engine, got to get that prayer so I can overcome whatever God's trying to do to me right now. That's not the point. Jesus taught that God is ever ready to grant what is good for us. How many of us might pursue things that aren't good for us? Pick me. Plenty of times. Daily. Right? We do not need to beg God in prayer. You see, the pagans mistakenly believed that the squeaky wheel got the grease. And so they would pray to all different gods and try to have this magical formula of prayer and all these solutions, and it just didn't do anything for them. They tried to get the attention, it tells us in 1 Kings, of all these demigods and other gods by these formulaic, magical solutions, and it just doesn't work. Prayer is to be founded on the goodness of God as a loving parent, and it lays hold on God's benevolence. When Christians pray in Jesus' name, they may be confident of God's response. But what they ask must be compatible with his teaching, his life, and his death. You can be confident in his response and that his will will be done as long as you're praying along with his teaching, his life, and death, his mission, his purpose. It's not going to work out so well for you if you put this huge faith in things that are contrary to the teaching of Jesus, to what the scriptures say. There are some things that Christians should not ask and some things that God will not give. As a parent gives to a child from his or her wisdom what a child needs, so does God. Do you know that when we we pray, Father, Heavenly Father, all these things, like it actually functions like a father-child relationship. And there are plenty of things that my kids ask me for that just isn't a good idea. Wisdom is not prevailing in those things that they are desiring. And if I were to give that to them, does that make me a good dad or does that make me a careless, flippant dad? Our Heavenly Father is so much more perfect than us, and He exercises His wisdom in what He gives His child. Consequently, we may receive answers we don't want. Anybody receive those? We may find things that we're not looking for. We may have doors open that we didn't ask to be open, darn it. Right? Like, that may happen. We may have an answer come back that we didn't want. Paul prayed for the thorn in his flesh to be removed, but it wasn't. But God's grace was sufficient for him, and his power, God's power is made perfect in that weakness. It wasn't the answer that Paul wanted, but it was an answer that gave him life, and he understood the proper context in which that prayer remained unanswered. So, we must pray receptively and confidently And we must pray expectantly. Pray expectantly. 
Our prayer should not focus on our own small worlds and immediate futures, but we should fix our attention on the long-term game, the big mission, the big C church, what God is doing on a large scale. Think of how many times people have offered up the prayer, God, your kingdom come, your will be done. Like, that's a big prayer, right? Your kingdom come. Like, okay, in process. <laughs> or we pray, God, your kingdom come, but are we willing to be a part of his kingdom coming on earth as it is in heaven? Are we willing to step into that mission and apply those words in our life and be that representative, that example, that citizen here on earth? That prayer should never fade in the heart, the soul, or from the lips of a Christian. God, your kingdom come. Your will be done. Pray expectantly for big things. Expectantly. And the final thing he teaches us is this community is to pray with a forgiving spirit. With a forgiving spirit. We can't make peace with God if we bear animosity for others. Can't. We can't be holding grudges or we can't be mad or holding unforgiveness against others, especially with God, if we're wanting his forgiveness operation and functioning in our lives. It makes us a vessel with holes in it. When we forgive, it patches those things up and allows God to fully work through us. God will not forgive an unforgiving and bitter heart. How many of you have experienced this? Where it's like, man, I just can't forgive this person for this. I can't forgive this father for this or this ex-romantic relationship for this or whatever it is. You, you're like, nah, you know, that, that crossed the line. I can't forgive this person for that. And then you have your times of prayer and you come to your pastor and you're like, I feel so distant from God. I, I just feel like he's not answering my prayers. I feel like he's not hearing me. I'm not hearing him. Okay, how's that thing going? Have you forgiven your dad yet? Have you forgiven your ex-wife, your ex-husband, your ex-boyfriend, your ex-girlfriend? How is that going? Have you forgiven God for not answering that prayer or taking that thing from you? No. Okay. Well, let's come with a spirit of forgiveness and see what God can do with that. If you're in here today and you're like, God, I just don't feel like I'm hearing from God. Or maybe that manifests itself and I just feel like God's not hearing me. I would ask you to search your heart and see where maybe there's a root of bitterness or unforgiveness that he wants to deal with because he cares so much about the health of your soul that he is willing to draw you into him to seek that forgiveness, to see that healed so you can flourish and be a worthy vessel of his gospel good news. Pray with a forgiving spirit. So my question for you as Melissa comes up and plays the keyboard is, will you be a part of this praying community of followers of Jesus that commit to the scattering of the message of God, to the scattering of the presence of God, the worship of God and the mission of God? And it seems like a, oh, well, yeah, duh. I'm coming to church in person during a pandemic. Of course I am. But no, it's, it's deeper than that, you guys. Like, will you commit to this? Will your life look like this? Will you join us? Will you give up more than you feel comfortable giving up this week to give that time to God and see him show up and provide for you and sustain you and give you energy and fulfill you where other things maybe do that? 
Will you engage in that way? Will you be a part of a community that commits to gathering on a Sunday, to gathering in a small group, to gathering in a prayer meeting for the purpose of being a scattered representative of the kingdom of God wherever you're at? Will you commit to that? Will you commit to that? And that may look different for each and every one of us in here as far as relationally how that plays out, or if that's at my workplace, if that's with my family, if that's in my home with my children, if that's reconciling broken relationships with family or someone else, it may look different relationally. But the heart of it's all the same. This is God, I trust you to bring about this new temple system because the temple that we see Jesus come in and denounce is not a representative of you. It's not good enough. We get that. And you've come to abolish that. And you've come to put your presence, your worship, your heart of prayer, your heart for all people of all nations into us to go scatter that and see what kind of impact that can make. And I don't know know about you guys, but like that's good news. Because now more than ever, people are receptive to creative and unique ways of connecting relationally, aren't they? If I would have told you like a year ago that we had people from Sierra Leone, Virginia, Washington, Portland, Eastern Oregon, Southern Oregon that were attending church with us on Sundays occasionally, you'd have been like, yeah, right, that's a long flight, dude. Like you wouldn't think like, oh yeah, we just have this stream and people join in with our community and we get emails and we get texts from these people that are encouraged and they're excited to go reach out in their communities. They're impacted by the gathering so that they can effectively scatter. The opportunity in the midst of what can seem like it's isolating and restricting is amazing. It's all about how we choose to see it. I I would have laughed if you would have told me, hey, prayer and fasting week is going to be awesome. And it's going to be almost all on Zoom. (laughs) Like, really? Yeah. Because how can Zoom get in the way of what God wants to do? I pray that there is more people involved in each and every prayer meeting this week because we are being creative and open-minded in how we engage. I pray that there's more people throughout the world that are getting good biblical teaching and experiencing community because all the preconceived notions of how relationships are supposed to be done had to get thrown out. Otherwise, we would all go crazy this year. So see the opportunity, not the challenge. We can complain about how it's challenging or we can seize the opportunity and see what God wants to do through these things. Amen? Will you be one of these people? I think you will. I am so proud to be able to call myself your guys' pastor. If this last year taught me anything, it's that I think I have the best job in the world. I don't even consider it a job. I tell people this, like, hey, if I won the lottery tomorrow, I would do the same thing I do now. I just wouldn't need to take a paycheck for it, praise God. This community is something special. And you guys have just been indicative of a resiliency and a unity that just oozes the faith of God or faith in God in the way in which you've interacted and persevered this year. And I believe God doesn't want us to settle for just like, gosh, 
There's no divisiveness. We're unified. We're resilient. We've made it through this stuff. Oh, thank goodness. And just wipe our brow and sit and lavish in that. Like, yeah, that's something to be appreciated. But God has gifted us that so that we can do something more with it. Because a message of unity, resiliency, perseverance, long-suffering, and care for one another, even when you have difference of opinions, is desperately needed in our world. Amen? So may God extend what he has created here in this community, in our state, in our nation, in our world. And may he do it through each one of you. God, thank you so much for this word. Would you embolden us to walk it out? Not alone, but together to seize the opportunities that are before us, to not settle for surviving this last year, but God, to seek you for what it looks like to thrive, for your gospel to thrive, for your good news to thrive, for your new temple, for this new scattered system of your presence and prayer and a community of prayer, God, to thrive. So grateful for this people, so grateful for your word, and the way you call us to, for that to play out in our lives. We pray your power and presence in this week. We pray for our receptivity, for our expectancy. God, would you meet us in this time? Would you continue to develop us into a community of prayer? We pray these things in Jesus' name. And everybody said, amen.